Welcome to the Nicole Murphy Podcast, where we explore the impact of media and the power of individual stories on the world that we live in today. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Nicole Murphy Podcast. Today I'm joined by Mike Kuzmiskis, and he has a really, really fascinating story having been on the ground doing testing, antibody testing with the company he was working for, i and now he's the vice president of health today. Is that the right way to say it? Why don't you just explain off the bat That's, what's going yeah. on? Yeah. <clears throat> so the, uh, you know, I might just start with the whole backstory. So um, I w- I'm an engineer by trade. I'm an uh, oil and gas engineer doing facilities, projects, pipelines, things like that for about 15 years. Um, and then... Um, just before the pandemic, actually, before COVID, right in January, uh, the, the the origin story, I guess, is that I had a requisition for lab work uh, for my doctor uh, that sat on my desk for like a year. I just combination of six week wait times or when I'd go and try and walk into the facility, it was a 45 minute to an hour wait. And I just got frustrated and leave. And so it didn't get done for like a year. And so I kind of found myself wondering there has to be there has to be a better system. Like I would literally pay 100 bucks to get my blood drawn and skip this whole nonsense. Uh, and then as I kind of dug into the legislation, I realized that Alberta was very uh, friendly when it came to um, sort of the, the framework around private medical care. And so I started up i uh, It was i Blood originally. So I started up i Blood Services. And the basis was that people would be able to uh, essentially pay for an alternate access point to the system. So if you had lab work you needed done, rather than go stand in line, we would come to your home. We would draw the blood and drop it off for you. And it would get into net care and all that. So that's how we started iCore out, and then um, the pandemic hit. We'll get it, we'll get into what we did during the pandemic later, but to kind of make the story shorter, pandemic hit. We pivoted again, and we started doing uh, antibody testing. And we were the first company in Canada that was doing COVID antibody testing, and then uh, you know we continued to pivot into providing travel testing and all that stuff. And then uh, you know as a, as a as the CEO of the company, as the the guy who founded it and started it, this was kind of my first real gig as as um, was running a kind of a big company. You know, we took Icor from the yeah, hundred thousand dollars seed money to seven million revenue in two years. We had fifty employees, seven offices. It was just this explosion. And then the the fatal mistake I made was that uh, as COVID sort of ended, ninety five percent of our business was COVID based. And I was trying to pivot into Icor Health. I did a rebranded to Icor Health with a different focus, um, and I just didn't make the pivot in time. And so we got caught. Icor went under, and lost the resource. So. Um, currently, um, I am the vice president of health today, which is a, a new startup organization. And what health today basically is, is, um, it's, it's a multidisciplinary healthcare philosophy where you have dentistry, general practice, physiotherapy, uh, and private blood testing. And so they were able to offer me a position to come in and help them basically give i uh, you know, a second life and the i brand survives. Um, and so that is, that is sort of what health today is. And so. We'll be operational here within a few weeks, and I get a I get a second kick at the can, so to speak, to to try and make this this preventative testing uh, solution that I was trying to make work happen. Basically, that's so huge, and I love that you're just like, hey, this is what happened. We were doing lots of COVID. Yeah. I'm sure you're not the only one who had that experience. There's a lot of COVID pop ups um, just out of nowhere. You'd see them show up at malls doing you know travel testing and, and all kinds of stuff. So it was certainly a little bit of a a gold rush. I was never really in it to make money off of people's COVID money, right? I was in it, like all the money I made from the company, from COVID testing, we put back into the company with the basis that I wanted to always get back to fixing healthcare in a sense. I wanted, I still, even today, you know, I still find it's ridiculous that you have to wait six weeks to get an appointment for blood work or that you can't get access to some of these really you know, important and interesting cancer diagnostic tests and, and cardiovascular tests. And so that was always my vision with that is to to kind of use that money to to fund something bigger and better and i just didn't quite make the pivot in time so we're gonna we're gonna get give it another go here uh and yeah, see how it goes. not yet now i'm sure you had a lot of like this was again in 2019 or just the beginning of 2020 is when this company came to fruition yeah january january 2020 is when we incorporated yeah yeah. So obviously covid wasn't on your radar when you started creating this it was obviously your experience um I'm curious what kind of backlash you got at this idea because it's like private healthcare, right? I'm curious the backlash you got from that, or if you got any. Um, there's there's always the the, the haters, 
there's always the, uh, you know, in Alberta and Canada, especially we've been really treated to, um, and we've gotten used to and accustomed to everything is provided, right? So even the standard of care may not matter to a lot of people. It's the fact that everything is paid for and you don't have to pay for anything. So people get used to that. So the, 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 another reason why Accor didn't quite make it is it is a cultural and a philosophical shift in people's minds because they've never had to pay for healthcare. And all of a sudden now they almost get offended that they had to pay for healthcare. I would say that was the minority though. I would say the vast majority of people really like the idea that, you know what, I pay my taxes. I fund this public healthcare system. I make sure I'm part of the system where everybody gets coverage, but I should also have the right if I want to go pay for a vitamin D test, or if I want to go pay for a cancer test, or if I want to go pay for whatever out of my own pocket with my own money, I should be able to do that. And that is, that is fully my opinion on all this. I've been paying taxes for however long I, I'm really rarely do I draw on the system, right? I'm one of the people who's putting money into the pool to make sure everyone's getting access to healthcare, but it's always frustrated me that I haven't, I don't have the ability if I want to put some of my own money in to get, you know, access to certain things. So uh, I would say it was overall positive and that's why I'm quite confident it's going to, um, it's going to work this time around. I think the environment that we were in the first time, it was kind of as a brand new thing and people weren't ready for it. But I think now that you're seeing how much the healthcare system struggling and people got used to paying for healthcare during COVID, I think in, you know, version 2.0, it's going to be more of a accepted mindset for people to to do that. A hundred percent. And there's like, people have also lost confidence in the medical system more during the last few years. It's a very, uh, I mean, look, I'm, I'm somebody I've paid, gosh, I paid $70,000 for out of province, out of country surgeries in the last 10 years. I've had two back surgeries, have elbow surgery, ankle surgery. Like it, it always comes down to, um, the system telling me that either a, I'm too young for surgery, uh, you know, I need to do more yoga or I'm young and my body will heal. My last back surgery, I flew to Germany and uh, I went to a, a spine clinic in Germany to have my disc replaced. Um, I had a bartending in, you know, accident 10 years ago. And the system here was telling me, you know, I'm too young for surgery. You need to do more yoga. You'll heal yourself. While I was, while they're saying, here's a giant jug of Tylenol 4s, double codeine. Um, here's some Percocets, right? And so I can see how this pill culture gets people hooked. So I had the decision of, listen, do I become a pill junkie and manage pain? Or do I take a loan, fly to Germany and get my back fixed? And I, and I did. I took it, bit the bullet, I went, and I'm 100%. So I think the system is great if you need a Band-Aid because you bang your head at 2 o'clock in the morning and that's accessible for everybody. But when it comes to more of elective procedures or things that can really improve quality of life that aren't emergencies, I think the system's really got a lot of room to grow. Yeah, and, and I like think a lot of people agree with me. And, and what's interesting about you too, it's like, you're not someone who's against allopathic care. You're not someone who's like against surgery or anything like that. In fact, you had to go to another country to get the surgery that you wanted. There's a, there's a place and a time for everything. I just, same thing with healthcare where it's become, it's come polarized. It's like, you're either allopathic or you're, you're natural. It's like, you can't, you can't seem to find a balance. Like, yes, there's absolutely requirements for surgery. And yes, there's, there's, there's pharmaceutical products that are required at certain times and need to take them. I'm one of those people that take them. But the, the problem we have is it it's so routine-based. You don't feel well. You go to the doctor. They write you a prescription. You take pills. You don't know what the side effects are. They may or may not help you. And then the same problem comes back. We don't treat root cause. We don't we don't you know treat lifestyle. So um, part of this, I guess part of the excitement I have with a lot of the connections I made with i 1.0 um, is that there's a lot of people in government, there's a lot of people in industry, there's a lot of people in our in our medical institutions and in our universities that agree with me that we can do better. It's just going to take a little bit of time and and courageousness on behalf of our sort of governing and politicians to be willing to make that change and do things differently, right? Mm, that's nice to hear because there's so many people who can get caught in the doom and gloom that like anybody in a position of influence or power is corrupt. What have you found you know, in interacting with these people? I would say um, certainly there's some bad actors, right? Um, but from my experience with our, you know, Alberta government and the, and the MLAs that I met with, you know, the former premier, the current premier, uh, health minister, I don't, I don't really think there's any bad actors. I think it's just a matter of politics and politicians needing to choose paths, so we'll get into it, but like the example I use is during COVID, um, the 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 failure to recognize natural immunity, it was not, in my opinion, a nefarious situation. It was strictly a, a policy decision to take the easy way, 
right? Is the easy way out. You have four and a half million people that are being fed, you know, pandemonium from the from the media. Everyone's scared, freaking out. They don't know what's going on. It is much easier to pass rules and laws that that have one path. There's one way to do things. If you all of a sudden open the door to natural immunity, it just made things a whole lot more complicated, right? And I just don't think that was there was willingness to go there. It was just easier to to lay down the one path solution and deal with the ramifications, which is what we saw. So my opinion, there there aren't, you know, maybe maybe especially in, in Alberta, but I mean, you go internationally, you watch too much Instagram and and you know the stuff. Yeah, there's there's nefarious rich people and politicians all over the place, no doubt. I just never got that feeling from from Alberta from the government that we have and the people that I've met with. It was just policy. It was just them trying to find the easy way out. Which listen, I don't let them off the hook, right? I think there was a time to be courageous and there was a time to try and do things properly and do things the right way. And I think they took the easy way out, which hurt a lot of people. So don't don't get me mistaken for thinking I'm giving them a pass, but I don't think it was intentional or or ill-willed in that sense. Yeah, I think that it's really easy for a lot of people to just put people in that box, even in the media realm or the healthcare system realm. And there are people who are nefarious. But I think it's mostly people who take the easy way out. And arguably, that causes a lot of problems in people's personal lives as well. And we all have done that in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And you get the reinforcement bias. I mean, that's that's what's so dangerous about social media today. And I'm just as guilty as you, you form an opinion and you start to look for material on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, that, that sort of makes you feel good about having that opinion. The algorithms kick in. And then the next thing you know, as you're scrolling, the only thing you're seeing is your opinion. You have no exposure to the other side. You're trained to believe the other side's wrong. So I just I just think this whole situation got completely blown out of control. I think media has a huge responsibility for what happened. Um, they absolutely only presented one side of things. There was no, you know, they talk about education and based risk decisions. There was none of that. It was thou shalt. And that was it, right? And that, there's a huge problem with that. So, um, yeah, I, I just think I'm not willing to, to, you know, say that there was the corruption runs rampant and, and things like that. I just really think people took the easy way out. And that's all. There's there's, there's people who who chose the hard way which is, you know, we chose the hard way, but um, it is when you're, when you're leading a, leading a province, leading a country, it's a lot easier to just say, this is how it's going to be versus let's entertain all the different opinions and spend some time on this. And don't forget too, if you had, if you had entertained natural immunity, um, you would then have to explain why you mandated certain people to get the shots, but then a month later backtracked and said that you are now accepting natural immunity or that it's just as good or better. Or you would have had to completely infrastructure change your whole, all your lab systems to ramp up to have blood testing, which it's interesting because Kenny at the time said that um, I think all the work we were doing forced him to comment on it. And the best he came up with uh, in one of his press releases is that he said, we're looking into it, but logistically, it's not feasible at this time. Whereas we were sitting there, you know, uh, a company with 50 people doing, you know, a couple hundred tests a day going like, you just need to throw money at this. We can scale this overnight. This is not feasible. I know the labs at Edmonton have the capacity to run tens of thousands of these tests a day. Right. So again, easy way out. And and yes, easy way out in the moment, but not long-term. Yeah, that's right. The easy way yeah, out. It's a case of let, let, let the courts deal with that for the next 10 years with all the the, the nonsense of lawsuits that are going to come out of the right. Yeah. I remember this old quote, like this stoic guy said, it's like hard decision, easy life, easy decision, hard life. Mm, like that. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. rings true. Like it was hard to obviously both of us to make certain decisions during this, but I feel a lot. I am glad I made those decisions. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sure. Yeah, do you have, well. are you glad you made, maybe I should ask you what, how do you feel about, I mean, you went through a lot of stuff in the last few years. Whoa. what do you feel now kind yeah of- i mean our our personal side was was wild um so you know started at core in january we officially got going in kind of march COVID hit in march april i think um and so we're just sort of leaning into that the antibody testing the the rocket ship of publicity that went with it and then as we get into 2021 uh, and Trudeau starts putting his mandates and things in place. And the one that kind of really caught us off guard was that you won't be able to get on a plane if you're not vaccinated in this country, right? That's the one that kind of shit got real, so to speak. It's like, oh my God, like, so at, to that point, we'd not been able to, you know, do restaurants and take our kids to baby classes and all that stuff. So it was, it was frustrating, but it was bearable. But the thought of like being trapped, I think kind of really drove that fear into us. 
And so our story is we just, we just sold, we sold everything with the exception. We have like our only personal possessions at this point are in a 40 foot sea can in a storage yard in Calgary. When we come back, we sold everything else, booked one way tickets and we came down to Mexico, which is where we are right now. Um, and it was, it was daunting. I mean, geez, two kids, a cat, 11 bags, you know, just one way tickets, but, um, it was honestly the best decision we've ever made in our lives, right? Our kids were starting to become a little bit, you know, drawn into themselves. They weren't being socialized. Um, you could tell that, you know, they were, they were kind of becoming people I didn't want them to become. And so we come down here and the first day, the first day we get down here, our friends invite us out for dinner to this, this beach club and there's no one wearing masks. There's live music. There's everyone running around. There's like 30 kids running around. And it was like, Oh my God, I forgot that this was what life is supposed to be about. And since we've been down here, it's been coming up on two years now. Um, the kids are, you know, my daughter's this brave Spanish speaking, outgoing, extroverted, incredible person. And my son, who wasn't really talking to people now, was like just waving and talking to random, you know, hola, like just random people. Like it's just been such an incredible change. I would have done that a hundred times over just for the benefit they had to them. Um, and of course, I know there's a lot of people that wanted to do that, that just due to financial reasons weren't able to, right? The ability for me to have run my own company and work from remote and, and have people in boots on the ground to do it for me was, you know, invaluable. I feel so grateful for that. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't have that option, but um, yeah, that was it. It was just like panic time, get out of Dodge. And so, um, you know, since that time, you know, we're still down here. Uh, we're, we're trying to find our way back um, for, for primarily for work. Uh, just to, you know, with, with I-Core having shut down and this new health today thing, it's probably going to take a little bit of time for that to get up to a point where it can really sustain um, cash flow. So I'm going back, I've re-entered the engineering field and working for a great company in town there. And um, and just to keep the family together, we're, we're going to move back. And what's crazy right now is trying to find a house to rent. I don't know if, if any of your people that are going to be watching this are familiar with the housing market in, in Calgary right now, but it is absolutely out of control. Like I've never been in a, I went to, to view one place uh, a typical house to rent and um, you know it's in the nicer part of town so you know list I think they originally listed it at 3800 or something like that and then within two days they realized they were low and they pulled it and they relisted it at 42 and then over the course of the weekend eight families went through and they got into a bidding war and it ended up going for like 4500 a month for like a, a single family home right so we're sitting there like this is absolutely ludicrous so we might end up sticking down here a little bit longer I, I really don't know but um, certainly the whole experience has opened our eyes up to the fact that we like being flexible. We're adventurers. I don't know if Calgary will be it. Maybe we'll end up somewhere else. Uh, it was just, it was such a blessing for the kids, for us, for life change. Everything it was, it was really, really good in that sense. That is, that is really beautiful. And I mean, without that pressure, maybe you wouldn't have obviously moved down. Yeah. So yeah. You needed the catalyst. Yeah. yeah. I like to say, I like to say thanks Klaus and thanks Klaus and co for, for doing what you did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man. Okay, let's backtrack a bit because I find this really interesting. You're in the midst of obviously COVID and you're doing all these tests behind the scenes. What are some things that were really interesting that you learned and and give people kind of, yeah, an overview of what took place there? Yeah, so just to explain, I guess, the the test itself for people that may not be familiar with it. So an antibody test it's a blood test. It's a simple blood draw to your arm, just like you'd have it a lab. And essentially, as your body encounters viruses, your body produces antibodies to to fight that virus, and it creates a memory, right? It creates a memory so, such that if you get sick with that again, you encounter that virus again, your body's like, ah, I've seen this before, and it starts manufacturing cells to fight that virus off. So you can do a blood test, essentially, to find out if you've encountered that specific virus, right? And so at the start of COVID, um, one of the labs I was working with on cancer testing, they pivoted into um, antibody testing because I think they saw where this was going to go. Uh, and so I was able to basically pivot with them. And I said, hey, I own a, I have a blood business. You guys are doing antibody testing. Uh, can I sell your tests and ship you the blood? You run the specimens and, and get it back to me. And they said, absolutely. Uh, and so we started uh, we started doing that on a limited basis. And then I paid, uh, I paid like 600 bucks or something to put out a press release saying that, you know, I-Corps Blood is now doing antibody testing. And if you can believe it, at the time, um, it was looked upon with great reverence. National Post picked it up. Global Mail picked it up. CBC picked it up. I was doing interviews nationally because we had a small office in Toronto at the time, right? So we got national coverage. Look how great this is. This is amazing. Um, and then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, the narrative right, about antibodies and natural immunity changed. For thousands of years, human beings have been 
have known that natural immunity is better than vaccine-induced immunity. We've known that. All of a sudden, 2020, things change, right? It's just odd. So anyway, we're doing these tests. Um, we started to do more and more of them, get more attention, get more attention. Uh, and then I just made a decision to start. Um, I saw the divide coming between sort of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and the, and the gap. And so I just started to just start asking people when they would check in for a test, you know, if they would co confidentially be willing to explode, uh, expose their, their status just to us, just to disclose their status for their vaccines, which, you know, the, wasn't going to go into any government or third party agency. It was strictly for like kind of our I-Corps internal purposes. And somewhere along the line, uh, I-Corps got the reputation for kind of being um, reasonable about the whole COVID thing and not really caring about vaccine status. I never, I never asked any of my staff for tickets. I never caught, you know, it's a personal decision. It was up to them. So somewhere along the line, we kind of got that reputation that we were the ones that were interested in exploring natural immunity and we had the, you know, the testing to do it. And so um, we started to get this data. Um, and, and the more we kind of, the more testing we did, word of mouth went out. And the next thing you know, we had a lot of people we were doing, I think we did 10,000 tests uh, over the course of eight months in 2021, right? So it's a very good sample size. Any like reasonable, I don't know, study that you would see has, you know, 10,000 is a decent number. It's not like it was a couple hundred. Uh, and what we were finding was that of the people, well, first of all, I would say 95% of the people who came to see us were unvaccinated, right? You had you had the unvaccinated person coming in to, to do an antibody test to confirm if the vaccine had actually triggered the spike protein kind of mechanism um, for for that. And in a lot of cases, not a lot of cases, I would say in 6% of cases, it didn't. So you'd have people who would get jabs, come and do the test, and it would show zero, like the vaccine didn't work for them, which is another interesting thing. Uh, but say the 95% or so of people who came in were unvaccinated. And what we were seeing is basically consistently week over week is that 60% of the people who were coming into our offices were positive for antibodies. And in some cases, at some point along the line, we switched to a, a test from Mayo Clinic uh, laboratories that actually put a score to it. It was as quantifiable. And so rather than just being yes or no, it was like you have a score of X out of 250. And so what we were seeing is that a lot of the people that were coming in unvaccinated had antibody titers, you know, in excess of or equal to the people that were getting double job that were coming in. So reading, you know, seeing this data, and at this time you had papers coming out of uh, huge studies coming out of Israel, um, another study coming out of Qatar that just continually showing natural immunity was outperforming, right? Natural immunity outperformed COVID, uh, the vaccines during Delta. It, it performed during Omicron. It was eventually you finally had, you know, Gates and, all, and and these guys saying that, you know, natural immunity is the best vaccine there is, right? So I'm looking at these papers at the science, the people who follow the science. I'm looking at the science. I'm looking at these these leaders of the medical industry talk about it. And I'm looking at the data going, Jesus, we need to have a conversation. Like, what are we doing? So I started publishing uh, on a weekly basis. I used to make these these scatter plots that would kind of put a data point for every person and what their test score was based on vaccination status. And I was posting these scatter plots uh, on my LinkedIn. And every week, week over week, 60%, you know, 60%. And so that started to get some attention. And eventually, um, with the work I was trying to do with government, thinking that we were really onto something, I started sending this in. So we sent this to Kenny's office. We sent this to Hinshaw's office. I sent a letter to every MLA in Alberta, basically being like, here is data. I don't think anyone else has this data. If Alberta got hit as hard by COVID, as you said we did, arguably, I think they said we were the worst in the country at some point. Um, if we got hit as hard as we we did, logic would then reason that coming out of the back end of that, we should have the strongest protection out of any province in the country, right? So why don't we test for that? And uh, I never really got any, I never got any response from any of that. Um, the one story that kind of broke this wide open was was uh, was a town in northern Alberta called La Crete. And La Crete uh, has about 6,000 people in it, 6,500 people. And their Chamber of Commerce approached us because uh, they had had a particularly bad round of COVID and they were one of the lowest vaccinated communities in the province. I think they were only sitting at 20 something percent. And so they approached us and they said, hey, we'd like to organize an antibody testing program for the town because we want to see how we're doing. So we worked with them. We sent a crew up over the course of five days. I think we did um, 2000 tests or something like that, roughly a third of the town. And what came back was 89% positive for antibodies from the people that were unvaccinated. 
And so if you go back to early in the pandemic, you had you had Dr. Tam and, and Hinshaw and everyone talking about herd immunity and that we needed to reach 70% herd immunity. And then it got bumped up to 80% herd immunity, right? And I'm thinking, okay, by your own rules, I'm showing you data that this town has 89% protection. And thinking I was doing something positive and instead what I was greeted with was CBC picking that story up, basically calling me a quack, calling in all these experts to come into the piece and say, I didn't know what I was talking about and, and basically try and trash it. And at that point I knew it was, it was a lost cause. Like there's the people's minds have been made up. Right. Um, what was interesting is other small towns around Alberta kind of rallied around that. They started getting phone calls saying, Hey, I see what you guys did in the Creek. Can you come to Drayton Valley? Can you come to three Hills? Can you come to, and so we started just touring around the province doing these antibody programs for these towns. Uh, and it was great. And I really had high hopes. We, um, we scaled the company up. We created all this capacity and I was just sitting there waiting for the government to be like, yeah, we could use your help on this or yeah, we'd like to work with you on this or something. And it just never came, never came. So kind of a lost opportunity, I would say. I think, uh, like I said, I think they just took the easy, the easy way out. They didn't want to entertain it because entertaining it would have made things a lot more difficult and complicated. And um, so here we are. What kind of um, work with the government were you proposing and looking to do? I, you know, I said at the top that I, I never really wanted to make money off COVID. I just wanted to, to build a business to make money off of, um, to, to make my business around preventative testing. So my big thing is you constantly hear about how the healthcare system's under duress and that we need to add capacity, right? Adding capacity is like the buzzword, we need to add capacity. Well, my theory has always been, why don't we add capacity by actually keeping people out of the hospital, right? Instead of adding beds, why don't we reduce the number of people that, that need beds? And so with the the position I had at ICOR and the lab, you know, relationships that I had specifically with Mayo Clinic uh, and Stage Zero Life Sciences is another one. They have a really great cancer test. I'm looking at these tests and I'm going, these tests are not that expensive. Why could we not do a general population screening program looking for cancer and cardiovascular disease uh, and see what the incidence rate is, apply some economics to it and make a business case for making an uh, you know, say on a five-year cycle, everybody gets a full panel every five years to look for these things. How many people could we catch early? As you know, the the um, the cost of treatment for early stage cancer versus late stage cancer is significantly less. The, the mortality rate is significantly lower versus early versus late. So there's there's the humanitarian side. There's a cost saving side. Cardiovascular disease you can intervene early rather than late. And so I put this pilot program together um, to the government that basically said. You know, let's spend, let's spend twelve to fifteen hundred dollars per person. Let's pick. I think I proposed a thousand people, but they they came back and told me that wouldn't have been enough. They would have wanted to do ten thousand for a bigger sample size. But you know, pick say say ten thousand people, and you spend twelve hundred bucks, and you do a full cancer, you do a full cardiovascular. Maybe you check for I don't know if, if the topic of the time is COVID. You can throw an antibody test in there to see what your your you know, herd immunity rate is, whatever. And then out of that 10,000 people, you you take a look at how the test results come back and what you see for incidence rate. So if you have 40 people out of 10,000 or 400 people out of 10,000, 4%, if you have a 4% incidence rate where you find something in somebody that's early stage, by keeping those 400 people out of the system, how much money is the system saving over the next 10 or 15 years, right? And so Alberta Health at the time had, had some numbers, um, 50,000 roughly per kind of incidents is, is a cost savings number that they've used. So we basically said, okay, 400 people times 50,000, here's your business case. The, the, the testing program would cost you X. The benefit on the downstream side would be X. It's beneficial to do this. Let's go prove this out. Uh, given how much money was being thrown around during COVID times, it just seemed the budgets went right out the door and people could just spend whatever they wanted to providing it was justified by COVID. I figured asking for some money to do this pilot would be a no-brainer. And we spent months and months, I met with North Caucus, the South Caucus, the you know health minister's office, like everybody in government I could think of. And at the end of the day, I got the, uh, you know, we've decided not to proceed with this at this time, which, you know, I, I just, I got a little frustrated because I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, how can you, how can you sit on a podium or stand on a podium, talk to a microphone about how you're trying to improve healthcare and how you believe that there's preventative actions and I'm giving you one and you won't even try it, right? So um, I'd, I'd like to think, Anyone who's followed ICOR or followed me knows that Dan Danielle Smith, before she was even a candidate, when she was doing her talk show, she was a big fan of what we were doing and the natural immunity side. And she was a huge fan of the cancer 
prevention programs and this pilots and everything. And in one of her leadership debates, she mentioned that, you know, the, the pilot that I propose is something she would absolutely do. And so provided she's still in power post May election, I will absolutely be knocking on that door saying, Hey, you know, you, you said you wanted to do this. Let's test your metal as a, as a politician. Are you actually going to hold true to that? So that's what I'm hoping we can, we can get done here in, in June, July, August kind of timeframe. So I just want to just repeat it back to make sure I understand and is mm -hmm. essentially what you were proposing is take some taxpayer money to give people the opportunity to do early testing to save taxpayer money on the back end and to say and to create more space in emergency rooms, more space in the medical system to be able to treat people who right. actually are having emergencies. That's correct. Like it was it was factors of money. So say yeah. the, the the economics were like you spend, you know, a hundred million dollars every five years and you're saving multiple billions of dollars in the healthcare system down the road, not having for late stage cancer treatments and heart attacks and surgeries and all that other stuff because you're intervening early. That's the basis of it. So yeah, it's really uh, interesting because again, this is you're doing allopathic care. Like it's preventative, but you're yeah, I mean this in, is you're still in that leading world. Yeah. It's leading edge science. Like there's leading edge diagnostic tests that are available at our hands right now and we're choosing not to to do anything with them, right? So um I just wanted to be the one to try to push that through. We're just stuck in this rut of of an operating healthcare system and how we think it's supposed to work, and that's not how it needs to work. It can be so much better. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because there's so many people who are like, you know, burn the system to the ground. Like we don't need allopathic care. Right. So, so it, I think that you're in a really unique position and I always like talking to people like you because you're kind of probably pissing off both sides. Yeah, sure. Both, yeah. Yeah. Bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Listen, there's places, there's places and times for both. I just, if you have, a, if you have a blood test, you know, Danielle got a backup. Danielle got in a lot of trouble for saying that cancer was preventable, right? She got in a lot of shit for that. But I was, I was, I was watching that, agreeing with her in a sense, right? Saying that, like, look at the number of toxins that we're putting in our bodies on a daily basis. You know, how many? So they pulled sunscreen off the shelf for having, you know, cancer-causing agents in it. After how many years has it been on the shelf? Does anyone take a look at the labels of the food that they put in their bodies anymore? The the, the water you're drinking, the air you're breathing, like just constant exposure to chemicals. And we know these chemicals are, are cancer causing. So yeah, I would argue that cancer for the most part is preventable if people start paying attention to what they're putting in their body and what they're surrounding themselves with. But if you're 25, 30 years old and you've been exposed to those your whole life, it's not like you can suddenly just clean up and not have to deal with the ramifications of the first 30 years of your life. So there is a place where if we have a test that can you can do on a, you know, three, four, five-year cycle basis to always stay on top to tell you if you have some sort of early stage, very treatable cancer problem, use the test, right? I just don't understand. I like I like to pick from both sides. I think healthy living and low toxic lifestyle and exercise and diet is massively important. Whole foods, organic, yes. But there's also a part of it where if I get really, really, really sick, yeah, I'm probably going to need something from the allopathic system to get me over that. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against that either. So I think this whole polarity that's society, there's two sides. There's the, I'm a middle guy. I've always been in the middle politically, socially. I'm in the middle. It just seems like the middle's gone now. And we need to get back to being able to have that, that little bit of both sides in the middle, right? That nuanced conversation. Yeah. But yeah. not the polarization as much. Yeah. Yeah, you either have to be what is it? You have to, have to be uh, fully on board with with pill pushing, or you have to live in a hut eating organic whole foods and making your own eggs. And you know, like it's just no. You can you can be in the middle. It's possible to be in the middle. We all need to realize that. So, okay, yeah. so you you have this vision. You 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 see, hey, this can be better. You're creating this, and like there must be there must be some devastation that takes place. Obviously, when there's a falling apart and that the government doesn't see that this would make it better. Yeah. I mean, it was soul crushing. Let's be honest. I, I, I built this. I was fortuitous, fortuitous enough to, I hate to say to piggyback on COVID, but I was, I was able to, to make money during COVID. Uh, I would argue providing valuable services. Like we we're the only ones that were doing a, a remote video witnessed self-test for those people that needed to go see their son play hockey or daughter play hockey or whatever. 
we, you could do that from your living room for 30 bucks and then get your test result and go do it. So we were trying to be innovative with like providing solutions, not just taking your money because you have to do a test, right? But I was able to make enough money during that that I was able to build up this, this iCore Health, this new company, this big machine. And I thought we were doing good work. And we had this wonderful concept that everybody I talked to in government that loved it. They agreed with it. They were asking like, even if this pilot doesn't go through, how do I get my hands on these tests? Like there's a lot of interest for it. And then to have it all sitting there and built, ready to go, the machines built, it's it's burning cash. I think we were spending like 400 grand a month on overhead on salaries and stuff, right? And it's sitting there and then it died because nothing showed up, nothing came through and it, it fell apart. So um, it was tough. It was really tough. But, you know, coming down to Mexico and um, just taking some time away from all that madness and just kind of rediscovering, you know, what's important to me and kind of going through my own self-growth journey and, and realizing kind of what matters to me in life. Um, I'm kind of motivated again. I want to get back on the horse, which is why this, this opportunity came. I was like, no, 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 I'm not done yet. There, this is still a thing. I do believe this is still the future of healthcare. And I'd prefer to be on the leading edge of it than 20 years behind when we could have done something. Right. So fortunate enough to have some, um, some people in this new organization that health today that, that believe in the concept, they believe in me, they believe this thing has legs and that we really can change healthcare. Uh, and so I'm really excited to kind of get back to Calgary and get back on the horse and see what we can do. If there's somebody listening to this right now and they're in that, like that dark place, right. What were lessons that you learned? Like what really helped you get back to a place that you're willing to go and put yourself out there again? I mean, there's, there's probably some things I can't say on the podcast. Uh, that I did down in Mexico, but there, there's a huge role for just sitting with yourself with some plant medicine, maybe. Right. And, and just really trying to forget the way you've been wired for the first, I'm 38 now. So, you know, I have 38 years of wiring of how my brains uh, put together, what I come to expect in life, what, what I think is important. Right. Um, a lot of it, I would say in early I core days was that I wanted to build this company so that I could have the, the expensive vacations and the gigantic house and the Austin Martin and you know, all these nice fancy things. And then you come down, you separate yourself from that world a little bit and you sort of just meditate and sit with yourself and you find yourself living in a very small two bedroom condo in, in Mexico. And you realize that life is arguably almost better here than it was up there. Cause you're not constantly chasing the unachievable, right? The, the hedonic wheel of life. You're just, it doesn't matter what you have. You always want more. You see these multi-billionaires with $350 million yachts that still aren't happy. And you, you have to at some point think like, when is enough? When is enough enough? And so I was able to kind of take that step back and, um, you know, kind of unplug and plug my brain back in and realize what really matters to me is, is just being, being around family, doing something that motivates me. And, and at the end of the day, we all have to, you know, do things that, they always say, find your passion, make your money from passion. Well, it's not, that's not necessarily realistic. I mean, at the end of the day, you do the, the world revolves around money right now. You need to be able to provide groceries and a place to live. And I get that. But um, I think just really understanding at a very core level, what your values are, what you want out of life and what you can do without uh, really allowed me to reset and not get caught up with all the noise that society was feeding me. And, and so now I can come back at this with a different mindset where it's like, you know what? This isn't about trying to put money in my pocket to have the the British Virgin Islands cruise and all these things. It's legitimately about like, I have a good job now. I have stable income. My family has what they need. I legitimately just want to fix healthcare at this point. Like, I, I really think this is something I can get my teeth into. And so that is my passion now. It's like, I'm so sick and tired of the system being broken and everyone bitching and complaining about it, but nobody doing anything about it. And so I really, really hope that I will have government's backing coming out of May uh, and I have to rebuild the machine. I have to redo this again. Thanks guys. I got to rebuild this, these offices back up. But once that's rebuilt, I really hope that I have back in this time to try to be just a little bit courageous to try something different because I think it'll be successful. Hey, I have a question. I'm going here. Uh oh. Who would, who do you think you'd be as a person if it would have been successful the first time around compared to now? I didn't, I didn't know myself uh, well enough, really. I was still caught on that uh, on that wheel. I would say I would probably be driving a, a fancy car I didn't need at this point. Um, my wife and I would probably have built that ridiculous vacation home we wanted in Radium on a lake that we would maybe visit four times a year. Um, I, would, I would just be caught in that cycle of like, 
you know, the, the car didn't make me happy. So let's go build this house. Oh, that didn't make me happy. Why don't we go on a vacation? Well, that didn't make me happy. So I think I don't, you know, from a, from a moral compass perspective or ethics or values, I, I think I'm, a, I'm quite sound, right? I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm out to, to screw anyone over or, you know, anything like that. I just think my value system wouldn't have had a chance to really reset itself and, and dial it to where it actually wanted to be. So now if, if those opportunities do come to me, I think we'll be looking at them from a different way. It's going to be more about experiences for our family more so than things, right? I don't want a big house. I'd rather have a small house, but I'd rather go travel the United States in a trucking trailer for six months, or I'd rather go see, you know, Morocco or, or go spend some time in, in the UK or something like that. So I think that's probably the biggest change is it's just more, I've realized that, you know, life is finite. And it's really experiences and memories that value more than than the stuff that we have. And uh, I can tell you from downsizing a house and selling it in like two weeks, you really do accumulate a lot of shit that you don't need and you're never going to use again. And I would encourage anyone who's watching to just go through the exercise of pretend, you know, pretend that you got to move. Even if you're not going to move, just pretend that you got to move and go look at your house with new eyes and realize what you don't need and get rid of it. Right? Just get rid of it because maybe you want to be in the position at some point soon where you want to be flexible. Right? You want to be able to make a spontaneous, quick decision and go on a big trip. And you don't want to have to deal with selling off a house full of stuff you don't use. Right. So I think it was a very uh, releasing sort of activity to have gone through the the purge. Right? Going through the purge, I think, was was incredible for our family. Um, and I love how lean we live now. We really don't have a lot of stuff and it's great. Yeah. And I like what you're getting at, too. It doesn't sound like what you're saying is, you know, the stuff is bad or vacations or wanting to do things is bad it's that motive behind it yeah absolutely don't get me wrong i'd love to have an r8 that i drive around all the time it's just not a, it's not a driver for me necessarily and i've realized with a lot of these these things that people want you know there's there's markets to rent stuff like that and i'm such a i have i have a thing where i clear uh, i clear dopamine twice as fast out of my system as the regular person does so what it means genetically is that my highs they last twice as like they're half the they last half as long and so i'm constantly looking for for new sort of things and so i'll get a new toy right and it'll it'll make me happy i'll get that dopamine hit and i'll love it and then very quickly it's like kind of okay that's that's over with what's next right so it's like you know what if i have an itch to drive a ridiculous nice car maybe we just plan a trip we go to vegas and i go to the speedway and i rent one for an hour and we just do laps in an r8 right just sort of that more experience because like at the end of the day what the hell am i going to do with a ridiculously expensive car I'm just going to sit in the driveway and depreciate and then what so yeah it's just uh don't get me wrong i think aspiring to wealth is is important and i think it's motivating i think everybody should inspire to wealth but for what purpose what are your motivations what are you going to do with it right yeah what impact or contribution is driving you instead of the idea of an image driving you. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, what are you hoping for next, Mike? What what what's happening? It's uh, it's actually an interesting question because I just sat. Um, I have I have a massive monkey brain. I don't know if it's ADHD or what it is, but my brain never shuts off. Right, and I think I've been able to to harness that ability to to be successful with couple businesses that I've started and be very um, efficient with my engineering work and stuff like that. But it also gets very frustrating. And so actually last night, um, I uh, I just did an exercise where I just sat at a computer. Um, and I highly recommend this for anybody. You, I just sat at a computer, I opened up a Word file, and I just started typing. And I just typed whatever came into my head. There's no sentence structure. There's no grammar. It's just random thoughts. And I tried to get every random thought I could on paper. And I did it for about half an hour. And at the end of it, I kind of just I think I just stopped typing mid-sentence. Right? I was just like, oh, I'm done. And I pushed back and I had two pages of of what ended up being the most honest conversation I think I've ever had with myself in my life. And it was about, you know, what are we doing? What's this all about? What do we want to do? And I think I came to the realization and thank God my wife's on board because that would have been awkward. But um, I'm, not really a, I'm not really a rooting type of person. I always thought that I wanted to have these big roots or I was following this homesteading movement during COVID. And I was like, Oh man, yeah, I'd love to have a farm and grow my own vegetables. Well, I can tell you trying to grow vegetables organically is not easy. It is very, very difficult. Um, we have put a lot of effort in trying to do that down here and the, the bug infestations and the weather and the, the, the watering and the, it's just, it's a very difficult thing. And so I think I'd be just putting myself in another situation where I would feel stuck and I would feel you know bored. And so 
my if you were to ask me where I want to be in five years is I want to be in my same position with with health today, running a successful organization that has changed the way healthcare is done in Alberta and nationally, if not internationally. It's shown people a different model, a prevention model, uh, which would give me the ability to to do that remotely from anywhere in the world. And I can take the family with me and we would just be able to go and just go on adventures. Six months here, come back to Calgary for a few, go do something else for a few and just just continually kind of get that sense of adventure that we want um, without being rooted down. So I think that's probably where when I do my meditation and my visualizations, no, I think that's probably what I'm going to be focusing on is making that come to reality, which I don't think is that unrealistic. I think it's, it's quite possible. Oh, that is, that is so possible. I have a question. Cause like you're kind of giving people tools here of what they can do to venture into this, but how do you discern for you now when something is like an idea from the outside? Cause the homesteading thing, like I, I totally get where you're at. It's like, yeah, okay. That sounds so awesome. But like, is that an outside in awesomeness or is it really a desire on your heart how do you discern that it's tough because my wife and I are the same when like something interesting or exciting comes along because we're so change driven and we love that kind of that spark that we get we're just like yeah I'm all in like I I, we bought a house off on a ski hill one time while we were on a lift because you know like it's just we're that we're that ridiculous couple and so I think a lot of these things come along uh, and that's great it's great to get excited about them and, and hopefully it motivates people to kind of do a little bit of your own research on that and your own digging in but then i really think it's important to just sit with it right sit with it get yourself into that sort of mindset visualize what it might be like in that scenario you know i read a few uh i read a few people talking about homesteading um and i know there's a bunch of successful ones and you see you see you know a lot of them on instagram and you see how happy they are but i would i would make the argument there's probably nine out of ten who you know one of the quotes i read was homesteading is basically working your hands every day to the bone for the rest of your life and then you die right <laughs> like i think i think it's just important for people to to really not take the uh the instagram filter version of what they're seeing for for truth and really think hard about what that would entail like i can tell you now before you go buy a farm and, and grow vegetables give it a good solid college effort to to grow organically in your own backyard at a scale that would sustain your family it's not going to be as easy as you think. Now, picture doing that at the same time as having dairy cows, at the same time as trying to deal with school for your kids, at the same time as trying to be social, at the same time, you know? So um, I think it's great that we've come to that realization that that maybe that isn't for us. And, and like I said, it is it is for some people and they're killing it. I just, you don't really hear about the ones that aren't killing it. And that, that's what kind of need to go do your own digging on that one. Yeah, I was on a call the other day and we were like t- talking about our gratitudes and everyone I'm chatting to is like, I'm so grateful for my garden and my animals. And I'm like, I'm so grateful I know you guys because if shit gets real, <laughs> I know where to go to either learn the stuff or to like, and I'll bring my skill set because I got a skill set, but I don't necessarily feel, you know, as called to that, you know? See, yeah. And my, my counter to that too is that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're gun owners. We have our, our licenses. We have a few firearms and Trudeau recently passed his, his handgun ban or whatever. So regardless of what your opinion on guns is, my thing with guns was always like, I don't plan on being some sort of special operator. I just want to know that if shit actually breaks down, I'm going to be the one who leaves with the groceries. That, that's always been my thing, right? There's going to be people who, who leave with groceries and people who don't. And that's, that was my motivator for all that. So plus zombies, we were on a zombie kick for a while and I've got a really ridiculous short barrel shotgun that's not functional for anything except killing zombies from two feet away so um yeah anyway i, I hear you let's get to know okay. the people you've mentioned your wife a few <laughs> times in here so i i'm just i want you to like what do you think makes your relationship work so well and like yeah i'm just curious because it's going to be other people they've had lots of strain in relationship over the last few years mm-hmm. like intense well what's some advice you could give you know for a healthy relationship in in changing moving times yeah, uh, I won't give the illusion that we haven't had rough times. At the start of COVID, I was still very much on the um, CNN train, I would say. Uh, and my wife at that point had been awake for you know six, eight months, maybe a year. Uh, and so there came a point where when things were really, really getting, I think this was about a few months before we ended up moving. When things were really getting bad, like I was, I was in the mindset of like, oh my God, like, I think, I think I need to leave this woman. I think I need to divorce. What are we going to do with the kids? Like it it was really bad. Um, but the way we got through all that was, was just open, honest communication, right? Taking the time to sit down and my, I don't communicate very well, um, in person. 
So if there's something that's, I'm not, a, I'm not a drama type. I don't like conflict. I don't like any of that. And so what I found my tool was that really helped me communicate was to write it down. And so I would, I would start writing down on just a word file, a letter or whatever. I would write all my thoughts down and then I would kind of sit with her on the couch while she read it so that I was able to get my voice out without choking down on, you know, or trying to hold back or being worried about offending her or anything like that. And then it would be out there. And once it's out there, you can address it. And she's very, very good at receiving uh, feedback or receiving information. And for the most part, not getting too defensive and just sort of being, you know, open, everyone gets defensive, but being being at least willing to engage in a conversation and chat about. Um, And so we've done that very well now for the last few years that really got us through COVID. Um, And without a doubt, I think we're stronger now more than we've ever been. We've been together for, you know, married for 10, together for 13. Um, It was a challenging time. So to me, it's, it's everything in life comes down to communication, whether it's personal relationships, jobs, you know, anything, it's always, always the root cause is always communication. And so taking time to, to just sit, sit down and have those honest conversations is very, very important. Mm, I love that. Um, what's the biggest lie you once believed? I ask this question to everyone. God, where do I start? Uh, don't forget, my whole world flipped upside down here in the last two years. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm looking at, um, you know, Vietnam War, Gulf of Tonkin incident, you know, that was all bullshit. You start to look at the war in Iraq and the invasion. That was all bullshit. You start looking at, um, well, obviously COVID and then the vaccines and natural immunity. You know, you look at that from a new lens. That was all bullshit. I've, I've, it's really difficult because it kind of drives you a little bit insane, but you start to really question reality as you know it in terms of like how, what else has been, um, what else have I been lied to about my whole life? And so even to the point of like the moon landing, like Jesus, I don't know anymore. I've watched documentaries to try and educate myself on both sides to see if I can make my own mind up the flat earth thing, right? I've watched documentaries on that too, to try and understand like where, where are these people coming from? What's the, so at this point, I think the benefit of it is that I've, I've created this willingness to at least open my mind up to listen to what everybody has to say to give me the tools I need to try and um, make my own mind up or make my decisions. But certainly at this point, you know, the Ukraine Russia thing, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I certainly know what I'm being fed isn't true, but is it as bad as yet? Like that, that's what's so hard about today. Uh, and, and information being so readily available and so readily tamperable as well. It's very difficult. I think the biggest revelation I've come to is how the financial system, well, no, I would even go back. I would say Rockefeller. I would say how the education system, the medical system, how everything was changed for the interest of money back in the day, right? I can't even imagine myself in a world before that, which is which is crazy. That's what 38 years of, of programming has done. So I can't imagine. And my wife is telling me that K through 12 education system was put in place because they thought it was basically 12 years to successfully like integrate or brainwash people. So you have this K through 12 system that comes out of comes out of this, right? So I think believing that medicine and education and everything came from a place of good may not be the case. And so trying to wrap my head around that. Another interesting one, if people haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's called The Hidden Secrets of Money. And it's a 10-part series on YouTube. Um, and it basically goes through the entire US and world financial system and how it's all just built on a bunch of lies and bullshit and, and how it's a house of cards. And what I found interesting is that not a single a single currency, paper-based currency in the history of humanity has ever survived, not a single one. And so you take a look at where we are today with inflation running rampant, the US dollar soon to be devalued, the Canadian dollar, you know, our debt sitting at 1.7 trillion, 1.17 trillion. You kind of, you watch that series, you understand how the whole the system works, it's Peter borrowing money to pay Paul, and it's it's all intergovernmental lending. And you realize like, holy shit, like this thing really is poised to just completely collapse. So there's been a lot of those, oh my gods, in the last two years. I don't, I can't say which one is probably the biggest. There's just so many that at this point, I don't even know. Like, I, I honestly do feel like I'm in the matrix sometime. I think I had that revelation the other day. I was like, I, I was, I didn't help that I watched the three matrix movies back to back, but I remember like, like touching, touching mirrors and being like, is this, am I, is this real? Like, is this happening? So it's been, uh, it's been tough on the brain. Um, and there's a lot of people that I'm sure are just constantly in a state of anxiety because of that, right? Like what is, what can you really stand behind and believe in anymore? So I think it's just very important to find community 
and and find those people that you can be open and honest with and have those conversations without fear of, of being judged or retribution or any of that right mm, that's so powerful yeah yeah <laughs> when when you have to question everything though I think you're kind of hitting on then the things that are real and important start to also pop out of the woodwork and it's like it's like relationships connections memories family sure yeah those yeah. start to become like oh that's important yeah and i still uh i still have so much work to, i've come such a long way in the last two years but i still have so much work to do in the sense that like this you know these stupid things i still spend you know an hour a day scrolling through mindless nonsense because the algorithm knows how my brain works and it's convinced me to be there yeah. um there's there's so much work left to do which i think is, is it's great to realize that because life isn't about the destination it's about the journey right it's about constantly trying to improve yourself that one percent every day and i started to really get on uh, there's a book called atomic habits as well that i've read i'm sure many people that would watch you have read that but that concept of if you try to eat the whole elephant at once you'll never do it but if you take a little bite at a time you'll, you'll eventually get through it. and it's the same thing right and i started starting my day with lemon water right and after i did that for two weeks that just became habit and now i start my day with lemon water every day or doing you know some push-ups every day doing a set of push-ups every day that that becomes habit but to me it's just self-improvement one percent at a time and before you know it if i look at where i am today aside from the, the beard and the hair if i look at from where i am today versus where i am two years ago i'm a completely different person and i, I credit a lot of that to COVID opening my eyes up to how the world works having support from the family and then just making those small changes every day mm. and and you hit on this like this information was newer to you like this you've changed so how do you not get bogged down in like and paralyzed with the anxiety and still go forth and and now you're you're getting back up after a devastating blow truly to yeah. rebuild and contribute and try again like like yeah i had the advantage of removing myself from the environment don't forget so when you're when you're in when you're in canada during covid you're cut off from socialization so you turn to your phone or social media or you, you create that reinforcement bias that, you know, the camps were created. There's the, the, the thems and the, and the us's. And so you have your team and you're basically all day, every day bombarding yourself with reinforcement bias of your views. And you're, you know, if you're, if you're a, a Fox news person, you're constantly watching Fox and Infowars. And if you're a CBC person, you're constantly watching CBC. And so it just creates the state of perpetual heightened nervous system and anxiety. So we got to come down here and it's like, I'm sipping margaritas on a beach with a pool outside my door. There's not even a TV in the in the city that I'm aware of. Oh yeah, there's, yes, there's some sports bars, but like there's no news. People don't watch the news. People aren't sitting there scrolling, sending each other stories. Of, hey, check this crazy thing out, and then you read that and you send that on to your friend, and the next thing you know, you roped all your friends into this conspiracy, not conspiracy thing. You know, like I think a lot of it is just you gotta you gotta remove yourself from the environment, however you can. Go for walks, delete you know, social media off your phone, change what you're watching on TV, just just break that that habit. And then at least it'll give your body a chance to kind of reset, right? But if you can't do that, yeah, you're just going to be stuck in that perpetual loop, which is where a lot of people are right now. Yeah, that's amazing, Mike. Anything else you got to, you want to say? Anything else you feel called to say? You gave some amazing tidbits here on like an actionable, actionable items that people can do, which I think is great. Yeah, I think everybody should uh, sell all their shit, quit their job, and move to Mexico for two years. I think that's a that's a very actionable thing. Um, and everyone needs to do the exact same thing as you because you're right, <laughs> and everyone else is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would I would say um, that people really it's nice to see the the social climate changing, but I think really people should start to do their own research and um, and and actively seek out some plant medicine options. I think there's an, a, a tremendous role personally in my growth from psilocybin, microdosing and, and macrodosing and um, just really being with people who who understand that, you know, DMT, things like that. So it's nice to see that's changing and becoming more accepted. There's more studies going on for, you know, its impacts on depression. So I think just getting people to be more accepting of that side of things and not they're not drugs as the as the you know the mainstream has branded them they are their medicines in a sense if you use them properly and i think there's a tremendous amount of power in them um and i would just you know again i would encourage people just to to try and unplug from the cycle that you're in right um you already know where you are you already know your opinions you already know what you what you feel to be true and what not to be true so don't continually just get stuck in reinforcing that you don't need it right try and try and get out of it um 
and and I'm excited just to come come back you know for my last comment Calgary's not going to be it for us you know we'll come back for a year maybe two something like that and, and try and get this this healthcare thing off the ground um just to to throw a plug in for the new um thing it's it's health-today.ca is the new company so we're still we'll be operational here in a few weeks there's a uh, there's a contact form on there right now so if you wanted to to join the, the you know email list you'll be able to for us to get in touch with you and tell us tell you when we're launching tests all that kind of stuff um but yeah i just look forward to continuing the work we started getting a second chance at it so to speak and hoping that um, this time around we have people with government and industry that are willing to be courageous and make the change and do things differently so. Well, that and yeah to clarify so what kind of services can people start to tap into in the next few weeks uh, as of right now, um, there are, I think, the dentistry, the general practice, uh, and the optometry um, branches of that are up to speed. Um, we're just hiring our first phlebotomist uh, this week. And when I get back to Calgary on the 23rd, we're going to be standing our first office up. So I anticipate we're going to be able to start offering, um, you know, the usual Mayo Clinic tests that we were doing before, probably within the next two to three weeks. Uh, but certainly getting if if you if you really want to get your hands on on some of those things, um, there's some really good tests there. Uh, go on the contact form, fill it out, and, and I'll make sure that before we really open anything up to general population, we would just send it out to those people that were on the um, on the wait list just to give them kind of first crack at getting those tests. Uh, so yeah, two to three weeks. Give give me a little time to stand this thing back up, and then um, and we'll see where we go. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. And uh, when you're in Alberta again, I'm sure we will hang out chat and catch up. So thank you. Yeah, we'll connect. Absolutely. Thanks, Cole.